0: Hello everyone, we're gonna get started now. Welcome to PutinCon Live, the Human Rights Foundation's conversation series where we expose the Putin regime and brainstorm how we can support human rights and democracy in Russia, Ukraine and beyond. You can view more talks like this on PutinCon.com. My name is Alexander and I'm a policy officer with HRF. HRF is an international nonpartisan, nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting and protecting human rights globally with a focus on countries under authoritarian rule. We unite people in the common cause of promoting liberal democracy. Please also make sure to follow us on Twitter for more conversations like the one that we will be holding today. One month ago, Russian forces launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Putin's army has mercilessly targeted civilian areas, including apartment blocks, hospitals, and civilian shelters. The war crimes of the Putin regime are clear to all, as millions of refugees flee the conflict and thousands perish. HRF is also fundraising for humanitarian aid in Ukraine. You can visit hrf.org/ukraine to donate to this important cause. In response to Putin's murderous behavior, the United States and the other democracies have inflicted sanctions on Russia, targeting the Russian banking sector, Russian exports, and over a hundred individuals, including some of Putin's closest oligarch allies. However, These sanctions did not target the most important segment of the Russian economy, the export of oil and gas, nor did they address a deeper problem, the ability of Russian oligarchs and oligarchs from around the world to hide their money in the West. This week, we examine how oligarchs conduct business in the West, the impact of Western sanctions on Russia, and what kind of reforms and sanctions democracies need to change Putin's behavior. We have three guests this week. Casey Michelle is an investigative journalist and the author of American Kleptocracy, which studies how the United States has become a haven for stolen wealth. Bill Browder is the CEO of Hermitage Capital and the head of the global Magnitsky justice campaign. Moderating our discussion will be Hagar Chamale, a former treasury spokesman for terrorism and financial intelligence, and the host of the YouTube show, Oh My World, which examines human rights and world politics. We will have some time at the end for questions, So if you have a question, please just send me a DM on Twitter. Thank you everyone for joining us today. And I'll hand over the conversation to Hagar.
1: Thank you so much, Alex. I really appreciate that kind introduction. Um, This is Hagar and I am particularly excited for this conversation not just because Bill and Casey have done some of the most amazing work on issues related to exposing and targeting the corruption of Russian oligarchs, among others, by the way, but because as someone who worked in sanctions a really long time, I started working in sanctions at the Treasury Department in 2006. I was there on and off until 2015. And I still work on sanctions issues as a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And The movement that you are seeing right now around the world to target oligarchs and their assets is exciting, I think, for a number of different reasons and really could put us on this trajectory and path that could really change things going forward. So I want to start by explaining why this is a big deal and having our panelists jump in on that. So, Bill, let's start with you. Why don't you give uh, just a brief context of how you got into this work altogether and why encouraging the world to target anti-corruption and Russian oligarchs specifically was such a critical aspect of your mission?
2: Uh, Well, great to be here and great to hear you and see you and and, uh, Alexander and HRF, thanks for hosting. Um, So as you, as many of you probably know, I'm the guy who was responsible for advocating for the Magnitsky Act. Um, uh, because uh, my lawyer Sergei Magnitsky was murdered in Russia by the Putin regime, and um, uh, and that work uh, has led me to understand uh, that the the thing that, that the the most uh, the thing that they're most sensitive to the the Putin regime is their offshore money, and we have found a way of of you know they they ter- commit terrible crimes to gain that money and uh and then they uh keep that money offshore and we found a way of putting that money at risk and this is their achilles heel and it it uh became when the magnitsky act was passed it it was the single largest foreign policy of putin that he stated in writing to try to repeal it he got so angry about it that he's been on a sort of 10-year manhunt against me and uh uh it's we now we now have their achilles heel and and it was the magnitsky act that that I think he knew in advance that, that that one day he was going to do something so heinous that we we're going to use this template to go after his money. And that's what we're doing um, by going after the oligarchs, who are the trustees and nominees for Vladimir Putin. So that's kind of, you know, strangely, the murder of Sergei Magnitsky has led to one of the major tools that we're using in the in, in the fight against the Putin regime in Ukraine by going after the oligarchs. And, and uh, I could have never imagined that at the time. And and uh, and now it is sort of being rolled out in a in a major way and in a way that I never expected the U.S. and the European Union and the U.K. to do. But but it's happening and it's happening in a pretty uh, pretty fast fast pace and, and in, a, in a way that that um, is really causing a lot of damage to the Putin regime.
1: I'm so glad that you couched it in that way because it is it's such an important fight, and I think a lot of folks may not realize that for for a long time now there's been this effort actually to uh led by you uh casey with his book many others at the helsinki commission for example who have sought to target these assets and uh and to to just to convey this message to governments around the world and also to the private sector that there is a reason why we should not accept these ill-gotten gains to be parked all over the world, that, that these corrupt actors should not be allowed to travel everywhere to send their kids to boarding schools in Europe and the United States. And, you know, I can tell you, I... Um, I have friends who will accuse me of saying that uh, there I've never met a sanction I didn't like. That is not true. There are sanctions I don't like, but I also have favorite sanctions and the Magnitsky sanctions are my favorite ones because of the mission behind it. And I'm always arguing uh, that when people say oh sanctions don't work, you know, there are many there are many ways I can push back on that, but one of the things I find that's the most telling is that if they didn't work then the leaders who were targeted wouldn't care so much about them. And they wouldn't like you just mentioned they wouldn't get angry about them. They wouldn't make one of their missions to prevent those sanctions from happening or to get them withdrawn. And this signifies, this movement you're seeing kind of gets to a bigger issue, which is why, Casey, I want, I want to turn to you to broaden this out a bit because you recently wrote a piece in Politico called sanctioning Russian oligarchs may not stop Putin, but it's still a huge deal. So can you unpack that a little bit and explain why this is such a big deal? You know,
3: uh, hey, that's a great question. Obviously, you know, first things first, it's an honor to be here with everyone today. Thanks to Alex and HRF and Bill, obviously it's an honor to be uh, joined with you. And, and what a remarkable time we've been living through in just the past month alone. I mean, you hey, to, to, to you you know, the point within that recent piece in Politico is, is I wanted to strike two things. I've had kind of two broader responses over the past few weeks. One is the absolute remarkable unity and strength of these sanctions that we've seen against these oligarchs thus far. You know, for, for years and years, Washington was leaving in this space. And understandably so. We have seen continued effort out of Congress and out of the White House to specifically target these oligarchs. And for so many years, it's been folks like it's been jurisdictions like the EU, Brussels especially, that has been seen as this laggard in this space. And you can include London in that as well. And we all know the kind of the broader story of, of London grad and the transformation of the city of London into this go-to laundering jurisdiction and haven for all of these Russian oligarchs and oligarchs from, from elsewhere. But to see London, to see Brussels step up over the past few weeks has been nothing short of breathtaking. I mean, I think there was a lot of, how should we say, cynicism pertaining to London's, pertaining to Brussels' responses over the past few years regarding Russia, regarding Russian imperialism, regarding President Putin and his expansionism, his nationalism, his clear imperialist uh, uh, viewpoints and the threats to his neighboring countries as well as the broader West. But to see Europe, to see the European Union, to see the UK finally, over the past few weeks, finally wake up to this threat of these Russian oligarchic networks, these Russian oligarchic assets and investments, strategic and otherwise, has been... Truly breathtaking. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around so much of what we've seen and beyond that, the actual impacts on the ground. And I know we'll be talking more about some of those specific sanctions as we move forward. And the other point, that piece that I wanted to make, which I've also been making over the past few weeks and as which, hey, you alluded to in the, in the introduction is these sanctions are phenomenal. I am fully on board with expanding them, entrenching them, strengthening them, and then making sure that they are, uh, they remain in place for years to come against these specific targeted oligarchic figures and networks. But we cannot look at them as a panacea. We cannot look at these sanctions as a silver bullet against Putinism, against Putin's will, against Putin's threats. They are a phenomenal tool that I've written about, certainly elsewhere in terms of disrupting these oligarchic kleptocratic networks, putting these figures on notice and certainly preventing them from visiting Western capitals and Western policymakers to lobby on their behalf. But they have to be done in conjunction with other policy responses more broadly. And again, this is where we get into the discussions beyond Putin himself, beyond the threats now emanating from Moscow into the broader world of modern kleptocracy itself. And then within that, the specific roles of the US, Canada, the UK, the EU, and other Western jurisdictions. And this gets to things like transparency in shell company formation, in trust formation, in real estate, in private equity and hedge funds, in the art market, the auction house market, luxury goods, all of these broader slate of counter-kleptocracy and pro-transparency reforms. They have to follow. We we have to get there. Because if we don't, we already know that these uh, uh, Russian oligarchs, as well as oligarchs from other kleptocratic regimes... They know full well how to circumvent some of these sanctions insofar as they use Western lawyers, Western PR agents, Western lobbyists that can freely and legally continue to work on behalf of these oligarchic figures and provide all of these broader financial secrecy tools and networks. So kind of in sum, the sanctions are phenomenal, need to be expanded, need to be strengthened, need to be entrenched, but we have to also push and pursue these other policy reforms along the
1: way. Yes, I you couldn't have said it better. Um, I couldn't have said it better myself. The I have been myself stunned, uh, pleasantly, surprised, at how the United States and Europe have moved, to go after the oligarchs and to seize the assets the the office set up at the Department of Justice for example, called Klepto Capture is exciting. I wish I had come up with a name like that. I think it's absolutely fabulous and it sends a very strong message. but the thing that um, that I can't help but but wonder is people like us have been have been arguing this for years um, and and why so the, so I'd like bill let's go back to you if you can say. Why is it so important to target this crowd? And is this this the impetus that made the U.S. government and the European government to finally take action on this was because of Putin's aggression? And so do you think it's going to stay in that world only, meaning that they're only going to target Russian oligarchs um, because uh, it's tied to this larger policy of Of disrupting and dismantling the Kremlin's financial networks and they've they've identified that this is an important arm of that of that strategy or could this effort be broadened to anti-corruption I mean are we turning a page is what I'm trying to say on anti-corruption efforts altogether and other that other we will go after the the ill-gotten gains of corrupt actors from all over the world so Bill start with that and then Casey I would like you to actually comment on that as well
2: well, I, I think that, that um, uh, this was all provoked by an existential um, threat to all to to all of us. You know, Vladimir Putin has torn up the rule book from you know post Second World War about borders and sovereignty and you know respective nations and so on and so forth. And so, I mean, you know, everybody has, has kind of been shocked in, in shocked out of their complacency. But, but, and I and I, I would like to believe, and you know, time will tell. but I would like to believe that that now that we have sort of gone down this path of really hardcore response, of really you know, messing with what these people care about, and doing it in a unified manner, in an organized manner, having tested out this tool, I kind of think it's going to be used in the future more 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 readily in other situations i think that that now everybody has kind of seen what it looks like and how it works and how these decisions are made i mean i don't think it's going to be you know the um uh, uh i don't think it's going to be the every bad guy is going to be sanctioned in every way uh you know the way we're doing with the russians but but now that these people have all worked together i uh, you know the eu and u.s and canada I, you know, more, more, more people working together in the, in the same way. The the other thing is, is why are we, uh, you know, wh- why is this so important and why are we doing this? Is, is that the, um, we have to cut off Putin's money for this war and the oligarchs are, are the, um, uh, source of, they're, they're the ones looking after Putin's money. They're his nominees, they're his trustees, they're, they're his everything. And, uh, uh, and by, by doing this, it, it you know, by freezing the central bank reserves, which we've done, and then freezing the assets of the oligarch, which we haven't yet done, by the way, we've only done a dozen, we need to do 100, but but at least starting in this whole exercise, we, we now have really hit them hit where it counts and and, and potentially um, dried up a, a major source of funding for this war. And as Casey said, you know, it's not the be all and end all, but it's a, it's a major piece of the puzzle and we have to continue you know, doing other things, we got to stop the uh, Western European countries from buying, um, you know, pay, g- giving money to Russia every day for oil and gas. There's a website that that uh, that I put on my Twitter feed today that that basically calculates every minute how much money has gone to Russia since February 24th, and it's like as of this morning it was like 17 billion dollars. It's probably higher than that now, uh, surely higher than that now because it's, it's a running clock of how much money is spent, but. You know, we basically have to starve Russia of, of, of the ability to execute this war, and and that's that's probably the single most important thing we could be doing right now. And, and and the oligarch sanctions are a crucial piece of that.
3: Yeah, Bill is precisely right. I mean, I I can only you know echo all of the comments that he's made made thus far. And I, I you know talking about the specific targeted sanctions in you know, themselves, like, you know, I know I've said this elsewhere. I, I think when the kind of broader history of this era is written, I think. These targeted sanctions against these oligarchic figures out of Russia Russia, and, frankly, elsewhere within the Magnitsky Act, the global Magnitsky Act, which obviously broadened the aperture of uh, Magnitsky-style sanctions, I think they'll be seen as one of not only the most effective counter kleptocracy tools themselves, but, frankly, as one of the greatest soft power tools that the U.S. and the broader West has developed. And and I say that because I think it's worth remembering that these oligarchic figures in Russia and elsewhere— you know the support for them domestically in places like Russia, in places like Kazakhstan or Azerbaijan or you know, Nigeria or Pakistan or elsewhere. You know the support for them is paper thin. You know they are viewed as rightfully these parasitic figures that have feasted on this trough of illicit wealth, on money that should have gone to schools, to hospitals, to infrastructure. And the fact that it is the West—it's Washington, it's London, it's Brussels—that is specifically targeting, ejecting them from the broader Western financial system, and bringing some form of justice to their truly heinous crimes, to say nothing of the relationship with the regimes in places like the Kremlin—is is, is remarkable. So, all of which is to say, Hager, I think to your question, you know, what you posed earlier, as it pertains to what should the broader Western response be? Should we limit this to Russian oligarchs? What kind of next steps can we pursue? I and mean, I, I think this is, this is frankly a once in a generation moment in terms of the broader reforms that we know need to be made in terms of the broader pro transparency, policies we need to pursue that have been delayed for years and years, and that those like Bill have been banging the drum about in terms of the national security threat, in terms of the broader uh, uh, realities on the ground for things like wealth inequality, democratic degradation, um, and and then as we see, this kind of neo-imperialist regime in Moscow now threatening all of us. You know, I think now is the time to push as hard as we can to finally get these policies in place, and that includes expanding these kinds of targeted sanctions, because we know that the kind of kleptocratic authoritarian dictatorial model we've seen rise in the kremlin is not limited to moscow this is a typology we have seen take root elsewhere this is where the uh uh you know hrf has been so effective on highlighting similar threats similar authoritarian governance models similar kleptocratic dictatorships in places like kazakhstan places around the world as well we know that these regimes these oligarchs these networks Thrive. They have a symbiotic relationship with the broader offshoring world, with broader offshoring services, so much of which are now housed in places like the U.S., places like Canada, places like the U.K., and places like the European Union. You know, this is a part of the broader discussion as it pertains to how the West developed these offshoring services into themselves, the Shell Company anonymity, the Trust anonymity, the real estate anonymity. But we do know that these policies have been created in Western jurisdictions Which the silver lining of the past horrors of the past month is that the West now has an opportunity to deconstruct all of these services, all of these broader uh, uh, anonymous offerings that these oligarchs require to thrive on and that these regimes need in order to live. I guess what I'm trying to say is now is the moment to truly push for all the kinds of reforms we know, these oligarchs and their uh, uh, related regimes require to entrench their own dictatorships, their own horrors, and as we now see, this broader national security threat itself.
1: You know what? What I'm loving about this is that for for all the listeners, it, it, you you will be hard pressed to find three people who are who get as excited as we do talking about targeted financial <laughs> measures and sanctions and how how effective they can be. Um, and so I love being part of, I, I love sharing this company, to be honest with you. So I want to drill down a little bit, a, a little deeper in terms of the question that is mentioned, Casey, in your op-ed that um, that Bill, you just mentioned in terms of increasing pressure on Putin himself and how these sanctions could, and your views, each of you, your views on how they could affect him, whether or not they could affect him. The Wall Street Journal literally just a few minutes ago just came out with, a, with an article, so I don't expect, I'm sorry to have to call you on the spot, but this, this just happened to come out literally just now, and it's so relevant. With an article entitled, Ukrainian President Asked Biden Not to Sanction Abramovich to Facilitate Peace Talks, and that the Russian oligarch, who is obviously facing sanctions, is trying to be the go-between. With Russian President Vladimir Putin, and so this this opens up this world of could sanctions or the threat of sanctions on oligarchs actually work in incentivizing them to press Putin to stop this war. I can tell you, having worked on, I helped uh, I helped plan out or or really. Um, yeah, plan out, I guess is the right word, the Syria sanctions regime at the beginning of the Syria crisis. And one of our goals in targeting the Syrian elites was the hope that they would defect and that they would press Assad to stop the violence there, and it did not work there, and so we learned after that at Treasury that this was a bonus. If that could work, great. If not, it's not the ultimate goal. Russia is very different, obviously. Um, the ties between the oligarchs and Putin are is closer. The amount of money is way more staggering than it than it is for Syrian elites. But what are your thoughts on that? So let's go backwards, Casey. If you could comment on that, um, is this an opportunity there? Do you think? What is your view on the opportunity there to change Putin's mind, especially based on this recent headline? And then, Bill, if you could answer.
3: Yeah, uh, yes, unfortunately, I haven't seen that piece in the journal just yet. Look forward to uh, seeing that because I I think... Um, certainly I've had plenty of conversations the past few days with plenty of folks all asking the same question. Why hasn't the U S sanctioned Roman Abramovich yet? Uh, obviously following, uh, uh, London's and, and Brussels lead uh, on that. And I think we now know the answer why, you know, that is to say it was a specific request from president Zelensky to not sanction him to potentially use him as a mediator. And certainly I would defer to president Zelensky as it pertains to what is best for Kyiv's strategy moving forward. You know, I, I think, um, you know, Hager, there's, there's kind of a couple ways to 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 respond to this. You know, on the one hand, uh, I would say that the targeted sanctions against these specific oligarchic figures in and of themselves, you know, acting as a kind of an isolated tool and tactic will not suffice to dissuade Putin right now. It may have worked in, you know, circa 2005 Putin, maybe circa 2012 Putin. But circa 2022, we know that Putin has grown increasingly and to a frankly remarkable degree, isolated. We know how little he communicated about this invasion. We know that his inner circle has only shrunk and shrunk and shrunk over the past few years. There's only a small cohort of nationalistic hardline figures from the security services and intelligence services that he communicates with regularly. And I don't even know if he even seeks advice from them at this point. Um, You know, we know that Putin views himself as this figure of historic import, as this almost kind of messianic figure that can restore Russian greatness and, and, and Slavic unification uh, you know, all of which is to say the influence, the impact, uh, certainly day to day, as well as the broader strategy from the oligarchs on Putin seems to have dwindled, seems to have declined considerably over the past few years. And I have no reason to think that would change any time moving forward. Now, I, I will say within that, you know, I think these targeted sanctions can theoretically work as part of a broader package of western pushback again much of what we've already talked about to say nothing of the continued arm supplies and logistics support for ukraine uh, on the ground itself now i guess what i'm trying to say is they can work they certainly should be continued expanded and strengthened moving forward in conjunction with all these other reforms in terms of transparency in western jurisdictions but I, i don't I would certainly not argue that in and of themselves they are enough to dissuade Putin right now um, from all of the uh, the bloodshed that he is solely responsible for in um, uh, in Ukraine. I think I, I, Hagar, what was the term you used? It was it was a bonus in Syria if these targeted sanctions led to some kind of governmental reform. I would say that's certainly a bonus in this case uh, uh, as well. Uh,
2: let, let let me step in here now and say that. Uh, Having having dealt with Putin for ten years in the whole Magnitsky struggle, um, my experience with him is that he never backs down. Uh, when he when when he moves on something, he only moves forward. There's no reverse gear. There's no compromise. There's no ability for him to show weakness. There's no ability for him to admit a mistake. And so the purpose of these sanctions is not to create a. Uh, a situation where we negotiate with him, the purpose of these sanctions is purely to dry out his financial resources. And if we were to dry out his financial resources successfully, and as I mentioned before, in conjunction with the central bank reserves, in conjunction with SWIFT, in conjunction with companies not doing business there, there may be a moment in time that he basically stalls out, that he doesn't have the momentum to go forward. And I think that that's our best shot at stopping this war, is not not that, that we're going to convince him to change his mind in any way, not that we're going to convince any oligarchs to go against him, but basically that we that he will no longer have enough money to execute this war. And that that has to be, um, I, I think, the, the way we think about this, because if we think about it any other way, we're going to sit there and scratch our heads and be all disappointed with ourselves when it hasn't worked, when the, the, the purpose of this is as a multi multifaceted way of, of starving him and economically surrounding him.
1: Right. There was actually a report that came out yesterday from Ukraine. So it's not confirmed yet that that Russia is unable to fix or build new tanks because of the sanctions, because they're unable to get the components they need. So and if true, that would be that is a perfect example of what these sanctions are intended to do right to hit the ability to finance this violence machine. So, Bill, I'm going to follow up with you on that with one more question and then Casey one final question to you and then we'll open it up to everybody what to bill uh what more would you like to see in the sanction space what more actions specifically if you could either um target specific sectors more by whom and also you mentioned that there are a 100 more uh i think you meant individuals uh that you would like to, who, whom you would like to see targeted could you Offer some more detail on what more you would like to see in the sanctions space to really tighten that financial noose further. And then, Casey, I'll give you—I'll throw you one more question at the end, and then we'll we'll open it up.
2: So, so it's very simple that um, uh, we we need to be complete in this whole sanctions program. So, what does that mean? Um, It means, first of all, when it comes to the SWIFT, disconnecting Russian banks from the SWIFT, we we've we've sanctioned seventy percent of the Russian banks, which which means logically that. If you want to make a payment in Russia, you just move over to the 30% of the banks that haven't been cut off from SWIFT. So we need to do 100% of the banks from SWIFT. Um, as I mentioned before, we've sanctioned about a dozen oligarchs. We need to basically put up the Forbes list, um, exclude the obvious people who aren't part of the Putin regime, which is a very small number of people, and then sanction the other the other 88 people we haven't sanctioned yet, who continue to be trustees, nominees, and other agents from Vladimir Putin. And then most importantly, and this is going to be the, the toughest nut to crack, uh, we need to cut off the, um, the, the uh, supply of money for Russian oil and gas, which means that we have to lean very hard on European Union countries where, where they're basically continuing to send money to Russia to buy bombs, to kill innocent people in Ukraine. And that's going to be the hardest thing to do, but that's going to be probably the most important thing to do above and beyond all these sanctions. And and if and when we can do that, then he's going to truly run out of steam.
3: Yeah, I'll again echo everything Bill said, especially pertaining to the broader sectoral sanctions, including on things like oil and gas. I mean, this is part of the reason that Putin felt so emboldened or able to launch this invasion when he did was not only the reliance from European markets on Russian hydrocarbons, but how tight the market was at the moment that he launched the invasion and i think we're seeing because of the lack of momentum surrounding or at least the lack of kind of finalization surrounding oil and gas sanctions that he may have been he may have been right you know to use a different phrase he may have had the europeans over a barrel uh and we are waiting to see what uh, the next steps for that will be i think you know what bill just suggested is just getting the the forbes list of the 100 or 150 wealthiest russian oligarchic figures together and simply sanctioning them and I, I, frankly i couldn't say it better i mean i think. I think it's remarkable that there are still, you know, even aside from folks like Roman Abramovich, there are still some of the wealthiest Russian oligarchic figures that have not yet been sanctioned by the U.S., by London, by Brussels. I'm thinking of figures like Vladimir Putanin, who has been one of the key Russian oligarchs to emerge, not just under Putin, but he was already a a key ringleader of oligarchic forces in the mid-1990s. He's still considered to be the wealthiest Russian oligarch um, uh, and is still not yet sanctioned by any of these Western jurisdictions and was somehow able to remain on the board of trustees for prestigious Western uh, uh, nonprofits, places like the Guggenheim Museum in New York, places like the Council on Foreign Relations until just last week. I mean, I think there's going to be a wholesale uh, examination. There has to be a wholesale examination of how it is that these Russian oligarchic figures were able to climb the ranks of not only these broader Western investments schemes and, and networks but even beyond that some of those prestigious nonprofits museums and universities and think tanks across the West for uh, years and
1: years to come thank you you know I, I I'm looking forward tomorrow to the what comes out of the NATO summit um, the what we've what has been reported is that there will be sanctions against all of the legislators in the in the duma um which will hopefully encompass some of some some more oligarchs and in terms of targeting other sectors deleep singh uh, said in a CBS 60 Minutes interview over the weekend that uh, that the U.S. at least would be targeting more sectors of Russia's industries and economies and, and its economy. But um, again, as, as you know, you both mentioned, what is so remarkable and so important in these sanctions is the unity that we have between the United States and Europe. So last question, and then I want everybody listening to think of their questions. And I want you guys to be blunt about this. On one hand, you have the government side of this effort, and obviously they need to have the proper regulations in place and laws, and both of you have been on the other end of that, and they need to hunt these assets down, expose them, and take action. So we know what governments need to do, but what about the private sector? Um, Casey, you you highlighted this already, and sh- we already know that the onus cannot only be on the government. A lot of the private sector is on the front lines in pushing back on taking corrupt proceeds and which you know but i know i don't see sectors like the real estate sector the auction houses and so on i don't see them yet having you know the, the light has the the switch hasn't been flipped yet in their understanding of why they shouldn't take these assets do you think that we are close to that or is that a long ways away
3: uh <laughs> hey, that's on, that's a, a fantastic question i'm not entirely sure as it pertains to where we are, where these industries are, where these uh, you know the broader trade lobbying groups uh, are, in terms of yeah you know if only because things have been so fluid over the past few days and few weeks you know the the way that I would respond to that is you know we've already seen significant indication. Uh, across certain segments of the private sector that they are no longer willing to do business with russian officials with russian clients to say nothing about actually doing business in russia itself now we haven't seen that totality i think there was a report just yesterday about renault the french car manufacturer continuing to remain in russia we've seen indications that nestle you know the kind of the, the multinational conglomerate will remain in russia so it's not as to say Every single Western uh, private company is pulling up, and we have certainly seen an unprecedented pullback thus far. I, I would say for those in the private sector, though, you know, <laughs> I think it's very clear working on this book about the broader American transformation into an offshore and financial secrecy haven. This, this notion that you can shame private industries, shame private actors into not working with these oligarchic figures and forces, you know, it, as much as that might look fantastic in theory, in practice, we have seen that fail Time and again, there is simply so much money as it pertains to these oligarchic funding mechanisms and networks that they will find without fail Western partners, Western enablers to work on their behalf. We can continue trying to use shame as a potential effective mechanism, but we can't assume that that is going to be effective for all private sector actors at all times. I, I would say, though, to those in the private sector that change is coming. These pro-transparency reforms that I talked about a moment ago, real estate, private equity, hedge funds, art market, auction houses, luxury goods, and on, you know, these anti-money laundering loopholes, these anti-money laundering exemptions these industries have enjoyed. To say nothing of the broader lack of anti-money laundering requirements on things like uh, American and Western lawyers. Uh, the the best days of those those kind of halcyon days of being able to work with whichever oligarch you want. I think those are going to be behind us sooner rather than later. And I, this is maybe a little bit too much on the optimistic side. And I've certainly been accused of being too optimistic in the past, but just seeing the administration's response in Wa- in Washington, congressional response. Uh, in uh, in Washington as well, to say nothing also of London and in uh, Ottawa and, and Brussels. It has been remarkable. I, I do think that the writing is on the wall for these exemptions and these policies, and it would behoove these industries, real estate sector, private equity, hedge fund sector, and on, to kind of get ahead of that curve, to realize that these policy, Uh, loopholes these exemptions are going to be ending at some point in the not too distant future and to be able to actually be seen as an ally in the fight rather than continue to degrade their public perception as these go-to laundering vehicles for all of these oligarchs out of russia and elsewhere
1: thank you thank you bill do you have anything you want to add before you open it up we open it up to the audience I think we're good. Bill, you're you're on mute. So I'm going to open it up to everyone. Alexander, I'm going to pass it back to you uh, to take some questions from everyone listening.
0: Thanks, Hagar, and thanks, Casey and Bill, um, for this wonderful discussion. I just want to let everyone know that if you'd like to ask a question, to please send me a DM on Twitter. Um, I think that'll be a much easier way of doing it instead of inviting people up to the stage. And we already have one question from, I'm sorry if I've gotten your name wrong, but Ali Yildiz, um, who's asking... Uh, who's saying that there are indications that Turkey, which is a, a NATO ally, is sort of ready to welcome oligarchs assets um, and how should the U.S. react to such a, can the, and to, you know, to make it more, a little bit more broader, how can the United States kind of pressure other countries around the world to, you know, to to, to follow along with these sanctions?
1: Can I, you know what, I'm going to, because I was at Treasury and ha- have been on the other end of, of enforcing these sanctions, I'm going to start with this one, actually, and then I'll open it up to Casey and Bill. Um, but one of the things I always tell people is that when when Treasury sanctions any target, it's not just a name on a press release. There is a vast level and relentless effort of enforcement that follows it, and The Treasury Department in particular is the only finance ministry in the world with its own in-house intelligence shop. And those intel analysts, their entire job, once somebody is sanctioned, is to then find all the related financial networks that prop that target up. All of their bank accounts, their financial enablers, their front organizations, their businesses, their maybe charities that they're associated with, whatever it might be, and to expose them. And sometimes what you'll see after is that they'll sanction those what they find publicly but sometimes it's not about the public effort sometimes it's where they privately travel all over the world and when i say all over i mean really all over the world and they will travel to countries and meet directly with banks and central banks but 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 banks directly and say listen we know that you have this account. You may or may not be aware that it's being owned or controlled by this designated individual. You also have correspondent relationships with New York. So you may want to think about closing that account. Wink, wink. Um, and it, it is a very effective effort because the bank doesn't want to get in the crosshairs of U.S. sanctions. They don't want to be targeted. They don't want to have a reputation of being a bad bank. Um, and so enforcement is is a natural natural next step to that uh bill casey do you have anything you want to add i think bill we may have lost bill <laughs> casey
3: yeah sure yeah no i'm happy to uh, happy to comment on that you know one of the one of the I, l- let me say it like this you know I, again t- thinking about the, the 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 momentous you know momentous shifts we've seen over the past just few weeks i think a lot of folks are going to take away that it was the invasion of ukraine it was Putin's, uh, uh, again, new imperialism that jump-started so many of these broader counter-kleptocracy responses. And so much of that is absolutely true. It's an absolute shame and staying on, on the West that it took that invasion for all of these kind of things to be set in motion in terms of sanctions response as well as elsewhere. But you know, I, I think a lot of folks weren't paying attention to what was actually happening before the invasion in places like Washington. Um, because it was really remarkable to see both the administration uh, as well as Congress kind of take the reins of global leadership in terms of these broader counter-kleptocracy responses. Just last year, Congress formed the first counter-kleptocracy caucus globally. We saw that expand to a a transatlantic uh, element as well just a few months ago, launching bill after bill after bill to clean up these loopholes and exemptions. Uh, And and then in late 2021, in December 2021, the uh, Biden administration actually issued the very first counter kleptocracy anti-corruption strategy document that you know was remarkable for a few reasons not least it didn't pull its punches when it came to addressing the american role and responsibility especially among industries like real estate and private equity and hedge funds in moving so many of these oligarchic assets themselves so what i'm saying is the u.s was in a very clear leadership position on this broader fight i mean there's still plenty of work that remains in the u.s but it was in a very clear leadership position before the uh uh the war itself and what we have seen since is indications that the U.S. is willing to lean on partners elsewhere, to go to allies elsewhere, especially out of places like London, which we know is struggling to clean up its own offshoring and money laundering sectors themselves. Again, we think of things like London Grad. We know that American officials have been communicating. Um, I don't know if pressuring is the right word, but at least <laughs> clearly communicating that it is in London, uh, London's best interest to clean up these sectors uh, because that has a very clear impact, as we now know on the broader national security components. in the us. there was a, a wonderful well not a, it was, it was a, a book review in the Financial Times a few weeks ago talking about how clear it is that American and British firms, law firms, accounting firms, real estate firms are very clearly now a national security threat because of the relationship the relationships they've built with these oligarchs themselves. Um, You know, I will say I'm not an expert on the Turkish offshoring sector. We have seen Turkish networks pop up or Turkish uh, offshoring services pop up from time uh, uh, from time to time. But I will say one of the things that has really come to the fore over the past week, the past two weeks, is the role not simply of places like London or Paris or Rome or or Istanbul, but is the role of the United Arab Emirates and Dubai in particular in opening itself up to all of these Russian oligarchic assets that are now looking for a brand new home. You know, Dubai, the UAE, has not followed through on any of the sanctions that the U.S. and others have launched, even though the UAE obviously is a nominal ally of places like the U.S. So again, in terms of the conversations that American and other Western diplomats have to be having, they have to be leaning on. These nominal partners elsewhere to clean up those offshoring services, to clean up those financial secrecy tools that are housing, as we now know, billions and billions and billions of dollars in Russian oligarchic wealth, which, as Bill uh, has so eloquently pointed out, is simply Putin's money. These are Putin's pockets that are now scrambling around the world looking for a new home and finding it in places like the UAE and, uh, and apparently Turkey as
0: well. Thanks, Casey. Um, We have another question, but I again want to encourage people to to send me a DM on Twitter if you you have more questions. And I believe Bill um, had another engagement and had to leave us. Um, But so from Maddie Cajonen, we have a question. um, Is there any indication that the Klepto Capture Task Force will bring about further financial transparency reforms, like public BO registries everywhere? Um, There are not enough tools or info to track down the funds and secrecy jurisdictions at the moment. Yes, uh, Casey.
3: Yeah. yeah, uh well I was going to say I, I I'm happy to uh, uh happy to hop in because Maddie is actually my old boss of the Financial Transparency Coalition so Maddie, wonderful to be uh, uh to have you here today. You know, the, the short answer is is no. The, the Klepto Capture Task Force is specifically dedicated to it's it's an interagency task force out of the US in addition to you know there's another task force that's now both transatlantic and transpacific that's also developing um, to specifically go after specific oligarchic networks. It won't be Lobbying, as far as I'm aware, for increased transparency for things like shell company registry or trust registries. It won't be pushing for uh, at least publicly beneficial ownership registries on that or o- other policies elsewhere. It'll be a specific task force going after specific oligarchic networks, which you know in and of itself is is fine and fantastic. And you know the more resources to that, the better. But again, similar to sanctions, it's not a silver bullet. It's not a panacea. It has to be done in conjunction with more legislative pressure, executive pressure on making sure so many of these exemptions and policy loopholes are, uh, are ended elsewhere.
1: And can I can I add actually something that I, I should have mentioned in in the question that was before about Turkey and enforcement? And I, I wanted to add this because this is really important. Congress is debating uh, imposing secondary sanctions, and I would expect that to happen. Secondary sanctions are not common. They are, right now we only have them regarding Iran sanctions and uh, certain sanctions related to Hezbollah. Secondary sanctions mean that you are targeting, you have the authority to sanction anybody doing business with the sanctioned target. So it, it expands the layer of any enabler, any avenue uh, of anybody doing business with that sanction target. So if Congress passes secondary sanctions, which which I would expect them to regarding Russia because it is such a big deal, just having those secondary sanctions exist as an authority legally often ends up deterring a lot of actors around the world from even pursuing that business. And so that's the thing that I would think about with Turkey or anywhere else, because if that's in place, with Iran, for example, it didn't have to be used very often. Uh, those secondary sanctions, because just having it there created that deterrent, and so I'm hopeful that that'll happen. But that is what the, that's what you know everybody in Washington is saying is that it that they, they, it should come soon.
0: Thanks, guys. Um, and so you know, again, if you have a question, please send me a DM on Twitter. I mean, I, I have one that's you know that I've been thinking about over the course of this conversation. Um, how important is it? Uh, for the united states to 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 sort of use these sanctions, you know can, can it be is it part of our should it be part of our kind of national security strategy to kind of identify oligarchs that we 've seen with the oligarchs connected to putin how you know how many of them are are not just associated with with the Putin regime but are actually you know actively involved in undermining Western in- institutions from the inside i mean they 're supporting kind of far right parties and their far left parties across europe and um, potentially doing damages, you know, supporting institutions that, um, you know, do damage to our own democracy. So, so how important is it from our perspective, you know, as democracies, as European countries or the United States um, to kind of target um, individuals, maybe not even just oligarchs, but people who are using money from these autocratic regimes to undermine our, our own institutions?
3: You know, Alex, I'll just hop in with, with a quick, quick response. You know, I've, I've, I've uh, you know, still never worked in government, so I won't speak to any kind of formal, strategic examination or focus uh, within the broader national security strategy on these. But I can certainly say that it is very clear that these oligarchs are effective proxies for, or effective foot soldiers for, um, a, <laughs> a ludicrously malign regime. In the Kremlin, they are not independent actors. They are not to be seen as independent businessmen simply pursuing their own interests. They are to be seen and are finally now being seen as uh, effective henchmen for a, a you know a revanchist dictator that's now uh, you know unleashing truly horrific bloodshed in the center of Europe. Um, we cannot go back to any kind of status quo ante as it pertains to viewing these oligarchs as simply these kind of you know, benign, anodyne figures that are just going about their uh, their own business. We have to begin addressing. We have to begin divesting. We have to begin cleaning up all of these oligarchic networks uh, uh, themselves, and we have to make sure that we are aware of where they're putting their money into, who they were funding, how they were bankrolling them, and beyond that with the broader strategy they're in. So I guess, you know, Alex, what I'm saying is absolutely, yes, we have to view these oligarchic figures out of Russia and frankly, uh, you know, elsewhere as well, not as independent actors, but as national security uh, uh, threats themselves.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. And, you know, that's that's kind of one of the reasons why I mentioned how it isn't a new concept to the U.S. government Uh, to the in terms of the importance of going after corruption and how closely tied that is to national security threats it is something you saw that started back when I was in government um, when when the Magnitsky law was was initially passed but but that increased you know under President Trump actually used the Treasury Department under President Trump used the Magnitsky law which targets both human rights abusers and corrupt actors um, and they used it very heavily and I'm I'm just pleased to see that it's finally catching on and and there's still a lot of work left as Bill and Casey both mentioned in our talk earlier but I think that the main thing that I would say is that it's here to stay so we already know that sanctions are a critical part of every single foreign policy strategy and, and are viewed as one of the most key tools in achieving national security objectives. I can tell you that that every single time there was some kind of foreign policy crisis, the White House would turn to us at Treasury and say, what do you got? What can you do? What are the assets you can target? What would make sense? What are the pros and cons of the sanctions options out there? And, um, and so that's here to stay. But... Um, and when it came to corruption it was always there was always an interest in it i can tell you for example in 2008 uh, was one of the first executive orders at treasury at least to sanction Someone based for corruption. It was related to Syria. It was a guy named Rami Mahloof, who's the worst. And he's the cousin, the first cousin of President Assad and just the most corrupt individual in Syria. And at the time, this is under President Bush, a lot of us at Treasury kept thinking, you know, we're we're trying to hunt down terrorist assets. Why are you bothering us with going after a corrupt individual so we did the action because the embassy felt very strongly about it the white house felt strongly about it we did it and the reaction from the syrian people was just remarkable everybody praised that action and it is an easy it is an easy thing to get behind is anti-corruption and so i'm so glad now years and years later it is becoming a central component of all sanctions regimes. So I hope that that remains, whether it's Russia or Syria, but also Myanmar, Belarus, and so on.
0: Hi, Hagar, I think you cut out there for a minute, but I'm gonna move on and we, we have one more question from Alex Lee, who says that we've seen companies like McDonald's, Visa, MasterCard, exit from the Russian market. Now, should American or Western companies exit the Russian market as well? Should all of them? Is it effective in fighting Putin, or does it just inflict unnecessary pain among Russians who may not even support the war in the Putin regime? Uh, yeah, I'm,
3: I'm happy to, uh, to you know, take that question. You know, I'm, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert in the kind of broader private um, company structures in, in Russia or jobs creation or uh, potential industrial. Uh Uh, investments that are already in in Russia uh, itself. I mean, I think it's a great, great, great question. Something that Western policymakers continue to deal with is where do you draw the line between inflicting pain on the regime and pain on the Russian people or extracting uh, potential concessions from the regime at the cost of doing business with with Russian clients? Um, You know, I I would defer to uh, wiser voices on the topic than than I on the actual, you know, the the logic behind those decisions and the impact on the ground. I mean, I, I will say though that it is, among so many other things we've seen over the past few weeks, a remarkable and truly historic development. You know, It is it is breathtaking to see how quickly an iron curtain can go up. It is breathtaking to see how quickly Western companies can be motivated by something beyond just the bottom dollar, beyond their pocketbooks themselves. We know that they are foregoing potential profit in Russia moving forward from Russian investments, from, from Russian clients, whether it's McDonald's, whether it's uh, Ikea, uh, you know, whether it's Visa and MasterCard, on and on. These broader Western multinationals are realizing the cost of doing business in Russia, aside from the profits they may make, is simply too high in and of itself. And they are, again, getting ahead of a curve that I feel is not only just beginning, but will continue for years and years to come. Now, again, as we mentioned earlier, not all Western companies have followed suit. There are some Western companies that remain. I think most notoriously over the past few days was Renault, the French automaker. But the fact that these companies have pulled out and are willing to divest from the Russian economy indicates so clearly we are in a brand new geopolitical era. We are in a brand new situation that is in many ways so unprecedented itself and we will be continuing to debate the dynamics continuing to debate where the line is should be and will continue to be drawn between inflicting pushback and pain on this uh truly malign regime the kremlin uh and uh you know foregoing opportunities to uh, (laughs) make basic profits from the russian populace itself i mean things are going to begin getting so much darker for the russian populace over the Coming months. I have no doubt about that in my mind. And I think in you know months and years from now, this pullout will eventually be seen, if it isn't even right now, as a prescient and wise decision on these Western multinational companies' uh, uh, ends. Um, uh, but there's gonna be a, a rocky road before we get there.
1: Zagar, yes. hey, do you want the final word? i you know, I'd love to add on that because um, and I hope you hear me well. I hope my reception is is clear. Um, the, I have never seen, you know, one of the things when, we, when I was at Treasury that we would beg the private sector to do is if they weren't, is that even if they weren't legally required to avoid business with a, a U.S. sanctioned target, that they would want to avoid the business anyway because of their own reputational risk. And you do see that with financial institutions usually around the world. But what I thought was just stunning with with uh in the in the weeks or actually in the days following Russia's invasion is how united most of the world and private sector was on this so you saw actions taken by by private businesses on their own volition it, immediately you saw soccer teams boycotting and saying they wouldn't play Russian teams. You saw energy companies come out before the oil, any oil sanctions like Shell and BP saying that they would divest and that they would no longer purchase Russian crude. You saw, and it 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 expanded even to the small businesses like bars in the United States and Canada dumping Russian vodka, which apparently may, not all of it may have been produced in in Russia. But the point is that you have all these businesses that are that that are now they are putting their values and mission and they, they understand that that's what the consumers want and they're putting it before financial profit and i am i know it, this is a big part of my brand oh my world um which is that by raising awareness of this you you have a whole generation of people and consumers who demand that of these businesses of entertainers of of whatever it might be and, and tell them, Hey, we don't want you doing business with a criminal or a thug or a a human rights abuser, whatever it might be. And so I, I'm excited to see this trend kind of remain and pick up. And I think, um, it's, it, it will help because it is, it is a very strong message. And even when you see things like Renault trying to go back to Russia, and by the way, we used to Renault in particular, we faced issues with them with Iran sanctions as well. They didn't really love the Iran sanctions. I believe that they're going to see the blowback in, in that decision because their own consumers and the public will lash out at them. And so this is something that businesses are going to have to take into account with every decision they make from now on.
3: Yeah, Alex, if I can jump in with just one, one quick comment. I was going to say, I was listening to a, a podcast just yesterday with a wonderful Russian commentator, someone who's really on the ground, an incredibly astute uh, you know, uh, analysis, who's talking about the realization that is going to be seeping into the broader Russian populace that is still so hemmed in in terms of propaganda outlets, in terms of uh, you know, uh, uh, difficulty of access to even basic social media news uh, these days, you know, as, as Facebook is banned, as, as Instagram is banned, and, and on and on. And he said actually one of the most impactful things he has seen early on in terms of the Russian populace, realizing the seriousness of this coming and looming crisis is not just the oligarchic sanctions, is not even necessarily – the thousands of bodies that are now beginning to return to Russia, but is, of all things, the uh, closure of the Ikea stores across the country. Ikea long being seen as this Uh, you know, symbol of uh, Russian middle class achievement of broader ingratiation and integration into the, uh, the globalized financial markets and access to even just basic levels of comfort. The fact that Ikea is no longer going to be available to Russian consumers, uh, as this commenter said, is going to raise uh, so many alarm bells around the country about the depths to which this regime has now sunk and what is in store for the Russian populace moving forward.
0: Well, you know, that's that's about all the time we have for questions, and, and thank you again so much, Casey, Hagar, and, and Bill, um, for this wonderful and, and fascinating conversation. Um, I want to plug again the Human Rights Foundations. We're doing a humanitarian fundraising uh, for, for, for humanitarian aid in Ukraine. If you go to hrforg Ukraine, any donations are, are much appreciated. They will go to directly to Ukrainian people who are suffering in Ukraine right now as a result of this Russian regime. Um, but this podcast has also been recorded. You'll be able to view the recording directly here on the Twitter app if you just find the link um, after it has ended. And we will also um, upload this onto Spotify and Apple Music and, and SoundCloud um, if you if you want to listen to it later. Um, but thank you again for everyone, all the listeners, for everyone who's here. And thank you once again so much to Hagar, Casey, and Bill. Um, it's, it's been wonderful. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Hagar.
1: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye.
1: Bye.